This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Today's episode is brought to you by the fine people Equal Vision Records and their new release from Say Anything called I Don't Think It Is. So you probably like brand new, Taking Back Sunday, Newfound Glory. You will love this record. I mean, Say Anything. They're a mainstay of our scene. It's awesome. So what you can do is go to sayanythingmusic.com. So the name of the band, music.com slash backslash podcast and you get a discount 15% off anything in the store from their newest release the cd features bonus tracks people or they got shirts posters whatever you need to outfit your room or yourself with the say anything so yes let me remind you i don't think it is is the name of the new record say anything is the band and visit sayanythingmusic.com backslash podcast do it up Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 200th episode of 100 Words or Less. I'm your host, Ray Harkins, and the reason I'm emphasizing 200 is the fact that it's 200. That is a lot. And that basically, that's 200 hours of you hanging out with me on a weekly basis through the beautiful medium of podcasting. And I really appreciate that. Like, I know I say that every show. I really do mean it from the bottom of my heart or my gut or wherever, the bottom of something that is important to me. Because uh, this thing would other, otherwise just be me talking to myself. But the show has built up enough steam and momentum that uh, guests are coming to me. I'm able to interview people who I never really thought I would speak to in this sort of context and then have them take me seriously. And I don't know, there's just a bunch of beautiful things that have stemmed out of this, uh, this fun adventure that I decided to go on a couple of years ago. And uh, I, I'm glad that you are along for this journey. So the 200th episode, I wanted to mark it in some special capacity with a really fun guest, an old friend who I just recently reconnected with. Uh, I met him. Oh, man, we actually go through where we met each other the first time. So I'll, I won't bury the lead. But Damien Abraham from a band called Fucked Up. He also does a side project band called Pink Eyes, and he's a very prolific musician within punk and hardcore. And I mean, fucked up, like kind of a big deal, kind of a big band. They've done a lot of amazing things. They've uh, broken through the uh, the threshold of being just a hardcore band that's only playing to, you know, 150, 200 people uh, a night, which that isn't a bad thing, obviously. But they, you know, they play like the pitchfork music festival and they play these huge things that many aggressive bands don't get the opportunity to but fucked up definitely has like i distinctly remember too they did a 24-hour show uh, in new york city where they basically played for 24 hours and had different vocalists and it was just really funny i remember seeing pictures of like moby singing with them and deciding to do vatican commandos which is moby's first band which is a punk band uh they decided to do some of those uh covers and uh, it's just they're able to do a lot of cool stuff. And then Damien, he himself is a, uh, to say he loves punk and hardcore is an understatement. He is a historian in so many ways. And uh, he actually, I just appeared on his show that came out this week called Turned Out a Punk, which is a podcast where he does something similar to what I'm doing, except uh, I'm hitting more of the, uh, I guess, emotional um, beats of a person. And he is definitely honing in on the all right, let's talk about the first seven inch you ever bought. Like what color vinyl was it on? And the minutia is awesome. And I love it. And I loved being on a show. And so we thought it was a good idea to kind of uh, do a split seven inch. So uh, you 
listen to this interview and then you go to his show and listen to my interview and then you'll both be exposed to uh, good shows hopefully you know and if you haven't heard this show before welcome i appreciate that this is exactly what happened here so anyways let's get some business out of the way and then we'll dive into the conversation with damien because it is quite a long one <laughs> so strap in i want to talk about um what do i want to talk about oh yes i do want to talk about some shows that i've seen recently i went to see a band called daughter and holy shit, that band is unbelievable. Uh, they, I recently, well, I said recently, but maybe a couple years ago, saw them open for the National uh, in Los Angeles, and uh, they mesmerized me then. And now watching them in the atmosphere of a club was even better. Um, just so much, so much amazing stuff. Um, let's do this as well with the John Bunch show. So I know I mentioned it in last week's episode, but the Sensefield Memorial was unbelievable. It was one of those things where... It just felt like I was walking down a lane of musical history that I had lived in for most of my life, like seeing bands like Outspoken and Strife and Mean Season, and then seeing bands like Texas is the Reason and Sensefield and Gabe Face and Sam I Am. Just all of these amazing people coming together for one unique event. And it was just, it was so special. Like, I, I know that sounds whatever cliched or trite, but it, it, it really was because. Uh, we've all been affected by independent music in some capacity and everyone celebrating that fact was just, it was a really special night. So there you go. There's some quick show reviews. Um, and also I'm on vacation next week. You will be getting an episode because I'm that dedicated to keeping a regular release schedule and next week's show is an uh, incredible one, but let's not, uh, let's not f lose focus on the fact that we were talking to Damien from fucked up for the 200th episode. I actually joked around and I mentioned that to him. Um, I was like, Oh, I'm not really celebrating the 200th episode. And then he's just like, what are you talking about? And then we started joking around about it. But, um, I decided to leave that part out because you know, you don't need to know <laughs> every piece of conversation that I have with people. So anyways, here is my discussion with, uh, Damien and I will talk to you after the interview is over and I'll uh, tell the guest and, uh, do some closing thoughts. So here is Damien. Let's do this. You're one of those people where it's like you've existed in my life for a long time, and I can't even like if someone put a gun to my head and was like, "When was the first time that you shook Damien's hand?" I'd be like, "I have no fucking clue." It's like that's what I think people in punk and hardcore kind of it, it happens with them at a certain I, time. I weirdly think it was actually in Toronto. I met you at the Dine Alone office. I don't oh, think it was in California. I you, think we actually you were away when we were out there the first time, and then I think I met you there subsequently. But I think the first time we actually met Matt was in Toronto. You, you're totally correct. I remember. Yeah, I remember because I, I think I came in with the the cancer bat dudes, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Then now that all comes back to me because yeah, you. What were you doing there? You were just hanging I was, out. I was. It was funny because I was just at Joel's. Like I was just there the other day and I'm like, and you actually were talking about you and we're talking about like, uh, you know, it's amazing how everything kind of goes in circles in our lives. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and we were like, you know, catching up and I was like, at the end of the thing, he's like, do you want to go downstairs and grab a record? And what I actually did when I was there is I was convincing them and helping them set up a vinyl department because they didn't have, they weren't doing anything on vinyl at that point. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, you guys got to do it. Like, it's really what you should be doing. And I went down to the record room afterwards and it's like, my God, everything is on vinyl. 
Right. <laughs> they have every piece of thing they've ever put out here. It's. I love, I, I definitely feel a kinship to you in regards to that idea of like, you see something that should exist and basically like, you don't care if there's any sort of, you know, compensation or monetary value to you. You're just like, hey, this thing should exist and you should do it. You know, like. <laughs> yeah, like to be honest, like the reason I really wanted to do it is because I thought Moondog, the Walter Schreifel's pre-quicksand quicksand thing mm-hmm. had to come out on vinyl and my best way of doing that would be by convincing the uh people at dine alone because they they worked with walter to put it out so i hit them up and was like hey can you uh you know i was talking to joel actually first thing he hired me to do was organize a cd collection nice <laughs> which seems like an easy job but that guy has no exaggeration i'm gonna say five thousand cds oh. like and that's and, and that's being conservative with how right. many CDs might be like stuff like there would be bands like clutch where, you know, I enjoy clutch, you know, I definitely have their first seven inch on inner journey records, but my God, did he go deep with clutch and my <laughs> God, does their catalog go deep? Oh, it like, does. It is crazy. I'm like going through it. I'm like, Holy, I have no, like live records and stuff. So he hired me to do that. And then I kind of came into the office and was just like, you guys got to start doing vinyl. You got to start doing vinyl. And so I kind of was like, doing that and yeah like i really just wanted to see moondog come out on record and that still has not come out on record. It, has, so I it has not and i i think the uh the the walter sings the hits should be also illegally pressed on vinyl um oh yeah via via lost and found or whatever uh bootleg company that uh <laughs> existed back then i, 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 I want to say that was we bite though i think we bite was the uh the, I, the bootlegger on that i uh this can you edit this part out Yes. Well, because I'm going to give you the name of the person who did it and it's going to blow your fucking mind. Okay. But you cannot reveal this because this person has sworn me that, you know, when sworn I brought to secrecy. It, yeah, sure. Yeah. Steve Aoki. Oh, that's, oh, dude. Okay. He, that's funny you mentioned that because he actually, he was in Revelation doing an interview with Jordan Cooper like maybe a month and a half ago. And, <laughs> Dude, he straight up told Jordan, like he was like, "Hey Jordan, like I actually did those Walter sings the hits," and uh, he Jordan was just like totally nonplussed, was like, "Oh, okay," <laughs> like wow. just couldn't care less. But no, that's, you yeah. you, me- you mentioning that triggered my memory, and I was like, "Oh shit, that's right." Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. If he's come out and said it now, because at one point he's like, "You cannot, you cannot," because he's got a Gorilla Biscuits back piece tattoo. He like, totally. He's like, yeah. Yeah. Like. You know, like, and so I was, uh, when I met him, I was like, Hey, I hear you bootleg Walter sings the hits when I met him at Coachella. And he's like, <laughs> he went like, he freaked out. He's like, no, yo, you cannot say that. I don't want to get sued by revelation. Like I didn't make any money off. I'm like, dude, I'm not going to, like, yeah, I'm not going to blow up your spot, dude. <laughs> I'm not going to blow up your spot. It's not like I'm like going to write a letter to, you know, the rev, uh, rev fun fact. Right. Reveal that. <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> Which I do love by the way, the rev fun fact. Oh, it's, it's my favorite. It's what it's one of the best parts of that email. It is it is my favorite thing to get. And sometimes you know they're hits and sometimes they're misses, but like anything else, but like the fact that they still do them, it's my hat's off. Oh, absolutely. Um the th- the thing that I always found interesting in subsequent times, you know, we've spent in whatever the same rooms and in proximity to one another. I always found it really interesting that obviously your band uh was always well documented as being like, you know, you guys were like friendly with one another, but basically uh, you know, when, when, like, when you stayed at my place in Southern California, well, you didn't, you stayed obviously mm-hmm. with Bob Shedd, but it's like every band member kind of like splintered off and did their own things, which I always found honestly incredibly healthy because 
it was always strange to me, like the, the guys in Taken, like they, you know, we would do our own things to like independently, but it was still like, there was a lot of this stuff. Like, you know, I was always the guy that was like, Hey, let's go like see this touristy thing. And everyone else was like, fucking Ray, why are you bringing us along for this? But I just always found it really like healthy, that idea of like separating. Cause you spent so much goddamn time together in the first place. Like, was that, I presume that wasn't obviously like intentional. Like I got to get the fuck away from everybody. I'm sure at times there was, but was there, uh, was there kind of that splintering that always happened when you did get to a town where you had multiple choices to do things? Well, I think it's really weird because, like, no one in the band, like, was – they were all friends. Like, Mike and I definitely were closest to each other, but no one was really, like, super, super tight. And then Mike and Josh became really good friends just before the band started. And so it was more like we just kind of came together. And there was, like, a brief period where we all collected records. I remember one time we were in, a, we were in Montreal and we all went to Primitive Records in Montreal and we're all buying records and it was just like – it's a really great memory to have because it's the last time we were all pulling in one direction. Um, so yeah, like I don't know, it it it, I, it, it just kind of I think by you know an outcro- outgrowth of the fact that we're all such different people, and you know I think if you asked anyone that kind of grew up with us, the fact that we're still in a band together would blow people's minds because right. we're just like none of us are the same sorts of people, and we're still like we've even grown into more different people, weirdly. Right. Like we yeah. found ways to be like, eh, how can we be, you know, more alike, but even more dissimilar or even more, sorry, similar, dis, dislike each other. Right, right. Or have these like, you know, widely different life experiences that obviously, you know, create uh, a division between you, whether or not it's, a, you know, intentional or unintentional. Like, you know, you being a father and it's like, you know, no one else in the band, I presume, has children. Oh, Josh is two now. Oh, God. So there's, yeah, that changed the dynamic a lot because I think then it became two of us pulling in the direction of, well, let's slow down. Let's try and spend a little more time at home. Prior to that, it was me by myself. <laughs> going. <laughs> and so just... that life choice definitely influenced the way things were going in the band. Right. Uh, but I think, you know, now with Josh, things have changed. And I think also everyone in a band gets to a certain point where you, you know, unless you become that kind of road warrior type personality where you're just trying to find a way to stay home. Oh, sure. Yeah. You're just like, Hey, this is, this is also a very fulfilling part of my life. Cause I, I, yeah. I do think there's that weird notion of like, you know, Oh, because you stay at home, like, you know, you're, you're, you're not part of the crew or whatever. You're not doing the right punk thing. And it's like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like <laughs> these ideas are like totally mutually exclusive. It's like, I can do this other thing and still be like, you know, the, the same person just because I'm, I'm not spending, you know, 300 days out of the year on the road or whatever. Well, I actually, I think, touring when i became like a quote-unquote pro core band or a you know a touring band right that's when it really changed the way i interacted with my scene you know like i was no longer able to be the the guy in the scene or like the person in the scene i should say sorry but because it was like i was just you know i was away you know i wasn't you know keeping up on everything that was going on necessarily at home because i was away on tour a lot so you know, now with kids, it's also really hard for me to keep up with what's going on. But I think one day when my kids are off in college, I will re-enter my scene and with a gusto because I will be at home and not touring. Right. <laughs> I like I like that. It's like the you know people look forward to uh, you know whatever kids getting out of the house, you know retirement, all that sort of stuff to be like, oh, I'm gonna like chill out. But you're like, dude, I can't wait to dive right back in. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna revive petty message board politics, and I'm gonna bring it all back. 
totally. When I, come, when I re-enter the scene in a big way, you're like, I can't. Yeah, I can't. I, I can't wait to relive the past glories of of message board days past. Yeah, exactly. The way back machine will be ripe with for my picking. Right. I think. I think that's like, you know, one of the. Uh, you know, that was for me was a really hard thing to accept. Was that I wasn't going to be. You know, especially at the point where we kind of like started touring, you know, like we were, you know, I felt like I had finally achieved my, my dream of being in a band in Toronto that, you know, was part of like the, the part, the upper echelon of the scene, you know, like I could play the shows and have kids sing along. And, you know, I felt like I knew all the bands and everything, you know, it was like exactly that was my fantasy when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like my, my musical fantasy, I should say. And, you know, then, you know, once you kind of have to let that go because it becomes your job and you're like, well, because it's your job, you got to, you got to tour. That's how the only way you make money. And then you kind of have to let go of this sort of like perfect little kingdom you had constructed for yourself. Right. <laughs> well, it's very interesting. I, I think that, there was something I was going to ask you about later in regards to like identity. Cause obviously a lot of people that do, um, you know, start to become, you know, really active within their scene and obviously start to get attention. And, um, you know, that starts to like, you are Damien from fucked up. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that is what people know you as. And like, obviously because the band still exists, like that is what you will be known by. I mean, of course, you know, people know you from the podcast now and obviously your vice stuff. Um, but was, was there, their notions of like the, um, I guess a feeling of like uncomfortableness where uh, like, well, yeah, like I am that person, but like, I'm also, you know, I'm also more than that and more than whatever reputation has preceded me or whatever. Oh, sorry. The smoke alarm just went off. No, it's okay. <laughs> of you hearing that. Okay. Um, you know what? I think there, I don't know. It's just like, you're right. Cause so much of my identity was wrapped up in like who I was as it's that it's my friend, Maddie Matheson. You know, Maddie Matheson, where he oh, definitely yeah. was. Yeah, it's my he's cooking up a storm downstairs, so that's what you're hearing. Nice. I'm hiding away in a wardrobe upstairs, but you hear him screaming and 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 it smells delicious. Whatever he's cooking, but uh, it's definitely uh, it's causing the kitchen know. to freak out. Well, it's actually it's funny. I've got like a little hardcore uh, ensemble below me. It's like Scott Wade's down there from of the former Comeback Kid lead singer and Maddie Matson. So it's like uh, you know, it all I still feel connected to it. Like that's the thing is like. I don't know. I think the the punk rock side of me, you know, like the side of me that was collect the record collector, like who, you know, me as a punk rock guy. I, I I never. I don't know. I. It's a really good question because I think you're right. Like so much of your identity becomes established on what people interpret you are, and I think actually, to be honest with you, it made me a better person. You know, I think people envisioned me a better person than I was, and I think I tried to become that, and I'm still trying to become that. You know, interesting. So like the because I, I do think that there's there's a struggle, especially when you are so um, readily identified with with one thing when you're, you know, in your late teens, early 20s. Mm-hmm. And then when you have to sort of, you know, I, I wouldn't even say transition out of it, but transition to like, obviously, the fact that it's like, you know, you're the the parents in your kid's school, like, don't give a shit that you play in a band. Like when you have to, like, find your identity outside of of that that safe space um, is, is when kind of, you know, I, I find and I see like people struggle with that idea. Yeah, it's weird. Like I, I think with with the band, I never had to. It, it's funny because like the band, because we had such a weird profile in Canada, pe- people at the, my kid's school know who I am. And almost like the like from the band, I think the it's more of the fact that they think I'm definitely really good at doing stuff when it comes to music. 
and I have technical abilities, like I can come to the school and I can run music equipment for them, which I cannot do at all, or I can do sound for them, which I cannot do at all. Uh Um, I think like now I'm finding that where I have to deal with the fact that, you know, like it doesn't matter who you are. Like as far as like, you know, I was this guy in this band that won a high profile award in Canada, but that's not going to pay my rent. (laughs) <laughs> this month right, <laughs> or next month, you know, like, and, e- and even people knowing who I am at the school, like doesn't really help in that situation. Like I think, you know, the, the, the more the identity is the fact that, you know, like you, you spend the first half of your life kind of constructing, you know, this, this, what you think you are and, and, and which way your life is going to go. And then you hit a point where you're like, well, I can't be that person for the rest of my life. Like I can't be, Damien, the lead singer, are fucked up for the rest of my life because I, it just my situation is not really going to allow that now with three kids and you know financially I just couldn't afford to do it I don't think and I think that's that's become an interesting thing for me is like you know you know people being just assuming that you know oh you were in this band that won this award you know five years ago you must be set. And it's like, no, I got to get it. I, I got to work every day, <laughs> a job every day. Totally. Totally. Yeah. There's definitely, yeah, there, there's that weird sort of entertainment industry perspective from people that, that have never lived in it are just like, oh yeah, like you, you toured. It's like, well, you define tour as a much different thing than what, you know, you and I define touring as. Um, yeah, exactly. Or like being on TV. God, yeah. I'm sorry. No, it's but not. Like, the idea of being on TV where someone's like, oh, you were on TV, you know, like, you know, you must be doing good. It's like. For like a TV show, you get paid like, you know, you get paid well, but it's not like you're shooting a TV show every day. And when I say you get paid well, it's like a few hundred dollars. It's not like thousands of dollars. It's not like you're making friends a million dollars an episode. Like (laughs) you're getting getting paid, you know, like, you know, $400, let's say for a day, which is is amazing. But you're not going to be working for like three weeks, four weeks after that. Totally, totally. It, it seems also like the um, because do you, you have an older brother or a younger brother? Younger brother. Okay. Um, the it seems to me like the the sort of um, I guess center of attentionness that obviously uh, kind of you know gets thrown upon people that sing in bands. Um, it seems like you kind of took to that naturally, but then you also have this this side of yourself that is very. Um, you know, whatever self-deprecating and like, oh, you know, I've just, I just want to be accepted. Like you were saying, the, the goal of, of being on the, in the upper echelon of the scene or whatever. Um, did that sort of center of attention stuff, I guess, come easier to you, like the performance nature of it, or was that a learned trait? Uh, I think it, I think it kind of grew out of the fact that it was just like, I'm just going to be completely free on stage, you know, like it was almost like an anti-performance in the very beginning. Like it would be like, and this sounds insane to think about it now, but I would go to the bathroom and I would stare at myself in the bathroom and be like, everyone here fucking hates you. And and I would just say that over and over again and stare at myself in the bathroom and just psych myself up. And then I could go on stage and just cut myself open or do whatever was required to kind of like freak people out and to make it kind of a, a weird show. Um, I think like being a fat kid was a lot of that, you know, growing up as a fat kid. And being afraid to kind of like take off my shirt, you know, like I didn't, I've I've talked about this before, but like I didn't take off my shirt till I I lost my virginity, 
You know, like I was just like, I'm just not going to take off my shirt publicly, you know, and I, I don't actually know what that's not even true. I, I had sex with a, a, like the first couple of people and I kept my shirt on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, like it was like a thing. Like I was like ashamed of the way I looked. So I think a lot of it was when I got on stage, it was just like, you know, well, fuck everyone. You know, I'm just going to go out there and and be crazy and be negative. And I think over time, I, I kind of mellowed out <laughs> very mm-hmm. quickly, I think. And I wouldn't say very quickly, but, you know, over a few years and it became much more kind of a celebratory affirmation thing. I honestly, and I, I credit seeing Andrew WK with a lot of it, like seeing Andrew WK live for the first time. And Mike and I went there to kind of out him. We were like, we're going to out him as being this hardcore kid because we knew he was a hardcore kid. We knew he played in cathode. Right. And Mike and I were going to interview him for Mike's fanzine. And you know, we, we, we sat down, we interviewed him and realized that, oh, it's like, you know, and I don't, you know, obviously people are like, oh, it's an act, blah, blah. It is so genuine, mm-hmm. in whatever it is, you know, like if it is an act, it is the most genuine act I've ever experienced in my life. And if it's legit, it's the most legitimate, genuine experience I've ever had with a musician. Um, but it was amazing talking to him and just like watching him at that show, watching the way he talked to every single person in the crowd watching the way everyone left that show feeling better about their day, you know, and their experiences. And I think that's when it kind of began to transition for me. And it became less about, you know, I still wanted to freak people out. I still wanted to be weird and, 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 you know, like you're, you're either with us or against us when you see it type thing. But at the same time, I started wanting it to be more like, if you're with us, I want you to feel better for, for the experience. I like how you brought up Andrew WK because I do think that there is something that's so um, – I remember like uh, Taken played this thing called Furnace Fest down in um, – down in I think it was Birmingham, Alabama. It was <laughs> mostly kind of a Christian festival. But anyways, Andrew WK headlined and it was one of those things like probably to this day, I don't think I've ever seen a bunch of like punk and hardcore kids in one room like having so much fun. Like totally yeah. – like exactly what you're talking about. Totally unashamed. Totally just like you know throw caution to the wind and not like a violent throw caution to the wind like let's beat people up but like you said the sort of celebratory nature and i do think that's it that's gets lost in a lot of people like you said that are kind of you know losing the forest from the trees and being like well whatever even if it is an act like you said it's still coming from this absolutely sincere place and i think that's uh that's a really interesting point that you you kind of that you learned from that particular evening and it obviously provided you know more confidence on what you could do within the context of your own band well, yeah, and I think I think seeing that show, you know, like it was men and women, racialized people, like all different sorts of people enjoying this, and and I like, and it was very inclusive. And I just think the the thing about hardcore is a lot of it becomes like talking about how inclusive it is, but then you know, there there you know, the exclusivity is what gives you a lot of strength. I find when you're a younger person, you know, except. So I think that's, you know, you can end up putting walls up at a certain point. And I think, you know, seeing that show, seeing how, you know, and I mean, especially because it's a bro dude club a lot of times at shows, mm-hmm. you know, and especially in Toronto at that point, it was definitely, definitely not a very hostile environment. It was, sorry, it was a very hostile environment towards women at shows. And going toward, going to seeing this Andrew Piquet show, seeing, you know, women I knew enjoying themselves and just, you know, being able to kind of experience on the same level what was going on and just kind of like, it just kind of made me re, 
assess the entire you know environment I want to provide when I play the show. Sure, sure. The um, and the reason I'm treating speaking to you a little bit differently than how I've treated a lot of other shows is because obviously, I mean, since you have your own podcast, you do you you your <laughs> your your history is very well documented as far as like first bands and all that. Yeah, stuff. yeah, so yeah. It's uh, so I I I apologize on the larger themes that I'm trying to hit on, but it's definitely just like, well, yeah, you know, you've talked about all this other shit four hundred. 70,000 times so I don't need to hey so what was your first band how did you come up with the name fucked up it's like okay <laughs> you you everyone's got that already um the uh the, the thing that I found so like find so really really fascinating um it partially just because obviously like every time we uh, take and played southern ontario it, you know we we got in, ingrained in that scene pretty quickly as far as mm-hmm. like the personalities and um you know the people involved obviously us becoming friends with Alexis on fire but the 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 thing that blew my mind was the fact that it's like, you know, you yourself and then obviously all the guys in Alexis got thrust to this sort of like mainstream stature of, you know, like you said, you, you, people at your kid's school know who you are. And it's like in the same way that like I, I so remember this is it's an anecdotal story, but funny nonetheless, where it's like I was uh, I, I, I was up in Toronto doing something for business and I stayed with uh, Dallas one night and it was right as he was dating or his his now wife who was. Yeah, a, Leia. He, yeah exactly. On, on much music. But it was hilarious because he was like he, we were watching the show and he was like oh yeah like you know that's that's my girlfriend and i was like what the fuck are you talking about like just what do you I don't, that doesn't make any sense and he's like no that's like she's legitimately gonna meet us when she's done i was like i i, I just didn't believe him and then she did and i was like what like what what world am i living in like it just was so bizarre so i'm sure from your perspective like once people started to pay attention to you on a on like a, a weird mainstream level was that tough for you to grapple with or was that just kind of easy to just like well i i guess i'll ride this while it's going <laughs> um i i like i think it was it really i think with the lex on fire getting to watch it happen with them um and it never happened to us in the same level <laughs> that happened to them obviously because it, it's crazy like and you know dallas at this point like like it, it's it's like he's doing stadium shows or like band shell shows in Toronto this summer, like huge, huge, ginormous venues, which I know he's played before, but it just feels like, wow, it's like so weird to kind of watch. I think Alex on Fire broke down a lot of barriers for bands like myself, like the screaming barrier on radio was that was the door they kind of kicked in. And when it kind of so when I when it started getting attention, when people started seeing us and, and recognizing me and stuff, I think it happens so gradually. And I think also like when I say I, parents at the school recognize me and know who I am, it's not like every parent does. Right. And, and I think I got to experience it in such like small little pockets that it was just like almost like a charge for me. <laughs> like it wasn't like I ever had to worry about getting recognized to the point where I had to leave somewhere, you know, harassed out of a store or anything like that, which I definitely, when I was with, George and I'm sure Dallas it's happened with that stuff is legit and <laughs> has happened mm-hmm. you know but with me it never did you know I'd always I remember one time I think it was like the first time a kid recognized me on the street ever um and it was after we actually had opened for Alexa on Fire this kid came up he's like oh my god you're in that band that opened for Alexa on Fire and I'm like yeah and I just started talking to the guy and then eventually it got to the point where the guy's like yeah I got to get out of here <laughs> he's like <laughs> Uh, like, like clearly I didn't want to talk to you this long, buddy. So yeah, like for me, it was never, I don't know. I never really got, you know, unfortunate in, in any aspect. So yeah, like it always kind of felt more fun, you know, and weird, definitely weird. It never, never still to this day doesn't feel normal. Like the guy 
at the convenience store down the street from my house, which I've been going to for years at this point, uh, you know, since I've been on, you know, being a VJ and all this kind of stuff on TV. And the other day, like two weeks ago, he's like, you know, we, we, t- we talk. He's like, hey, are you, are you the guy on Vice who talks about weed? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, oh, my God, someone from this neighborhood finally makes it. And I'm like, man, I'm making less than I did before. <laughs> You're, dude, it it is it is funny how that just that that definition of making it where it's just like well yeah, yeah. like I'm, I'm 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 on a web series on you know a very very popular medium but uh, I don't know if I've made it but thanks I'm glad yeah, you're watching you. I really appreciate you know, that exactly and then I you know and said notice that I'm buying the smaller bottle of Perrier not the big expensive bottle <laughs> yeah notice, notice that I'm not buying Pellegrino I'm buying Perrier yeah yeah exactly I'm buying I'm buying the uh, the President's Choice band oh you guys don't have President's Choice in the in America but that's like our uh, store brand your and store actually, brand yeah. it's a pretty fancy store brand so <laughs> right you forget about it. forget everything I said <laughs> yeah. um, and so I, I also think too that there there has to be this uh, this connection the fact that uh, I, I there's no way that in the states obviously I, I think that you know notoriety for you know either yourself or obviously like we were mentioning uh, Alexis as well that couldn't have happened anywhere but Canada in my opinion like I, yeah, I think England that's like, true that's yeah. true that's true yeah 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 like uh, bring me the horizon and stuff like watching that kind of happen in England. And even with Alexis, Alexis got huge in England too and Australia too. But you're right. Like it, it just seems like in a, it, it would not be something that would happen necessarily in America. Right. Definitely. Um, the uh, and obviously the trajectory of of, of fucked up is uh, was been really interesting to trace, obviously from the fact that, you know, you, for all, stretches of the imagination like you know you guys obviously have added layers and textures to your sound but you're still just an aggressive punk band um, and that's been <laughs> obviously the through line for everything yeah and I, I i found it so interesting that like obviously once the um you know indie world started to pay attention to what uh you know bands of our nature were doing i just found it so um interesting because obviously you guys and you know bands like ceremony received a lot of shit for the fact that it's just like oh you're on matador like you're real fucking cool or whatever like I'm just obviously mimicking the internet or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I understand. But um, like, I, I did any of that kind of just because you were so hyper aware of everything. Like, did any of that uh, kind of bubble up to you and like bother you, or was it one of those things where you're just like, well, we're making the decisions we're doing that are best for the band. Obviously, I'm not listening to you know internet tomfoolery. I think like by that point, it, like you know, it, it's like you should have gotten to me earlier. You know, like if anyone was pissed off at us by that point, like. I, the ones that hurt me was when it was kind of like I remember we did Year of the Pig and it was reviewed in Maximum Rock and Roll and it was reviewed by Martine from like Limpris and Los Crudos who's like a friend of mine. I love him and I and I still love him. Like no, you know I've gotten over this now, but he hated the record and slammed it in such a way that it almost felt personal. And that was like you know like fuck he was like you know this band's going jazz and all this kind of stuff and. And I just remember reading that and that one hurt, you know, that one really, I was like, oh my God, like what, I just, I'm just trying to play. And we hadn't even, I don't think we had signed to, oh, maybe we had, we had, we had just signed a Jade Tree around that time, mm-hmm. just signed a Jade Tree. And, uh, you know, so like around then that was when it was kind of like, it stung a little more when it was people that I had known and people that I really liked fucked up in the beginning, kind of like in the seven inch era. That when we did the J Tree jump, kind of were like, ah, oh, fuck this band now. I remember actually sitting in the car 
in God, I can't remember where we were, but I was sitting and we were playing the new album rough mixes that we had just done for Hidden World. And uh Beave, uh who sings in the band Urban Blight, um I think he actually goes by his real name Michael now Huntington, but <laughs> the Beave. He will right. always be the Beave to me. Uh, and he's a key figure in all of our Southern Ontario bands, I think. Uh, anyway, he's like, uh, I like the version of this song you guys did on the 12-inch way more. When we were, I forget which song it was even. <laughs> like, I just remember being so bummed out. I'm like, fuck you, Beef. Right. You're like, but but we worked, we worked really hard on we this. We worked hard. Like, this took way longer to record than that other one. You know, but that's just like, and I, and I think, I think also I watched it happen with Tear It Up. You know, do you remember the band Tear It Up? Of course, of course. I love that band. And and just kind of like watching them just kind of grow as a band and do what they want to do as a band. And then just watching people like be like, meh, I like the old stuff more, mm-hmm. you know, and it's and it, you just can't stop that from happening. So, you know, rather than trying to fight it, you might as well just like enjoy the ride. And I kind of even got to feel like I was part of a canon of bands that experienced that now, you know, like I got to feel like I was in a, you know, part of a, a greater conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, you're, you're never going to be able to retroactively please all the people that have followed you since, you know, whatever demo tapes for seven inch or whatever. But yeah, all your only hope is to obviously add people as you're going along. But then to me, the more, you know, beneficial side of things is the fact that you can be sort of that gateway band that gets people into this whole subculture. And it's like, you know, one person randomly seeing you at some, you know, huge festival or whatever is going to be like, wow, like I really identify with that. And then clearly because you, you know, you wear all of your influences on your sleeves, you're going to like, they're going to dive back and be like, oh yeah, I'll listen. I'll listen to no warning, you know, (laughs) but like that, that will be more of a calling card than just like, oh, like we're, you know, we're, we're trying to play aggressive music, but you know, we really are just like indie rock kids at heart, you know? Well, there's like, there's, you know, there's different archetypes of bands, right? Like there's like, you know, different types of, of, of like, I guess, punk and hardcore bands, you know, and uh, for the longest time, my hope was we would be one of the obscure ones, one of those bands that, you know, put out a couple records and just disappeared and no one ever heard anything from them ever again. And that was actually like Mike's dream too and fucked up. And when we had a plan, they were going to stop fucked up and we we're going to start another band called Get Bent. And Get Bent was going to be the real band and Fucked Up was going to be the fake band that was just going to like be the obscure band that disappeared and never went on beyond a certain number of records. Like this was obviously jettisoned very early on <laughs> as a plan. Sure. But uh, I think that was, you know, there's like that, there's like kind of like the romanticism about, you know, a band that's perfect because they never changed. You know, like my f- favorite bands are those perfect bands, like the H100s, who did three seven inches. And, and that and that's it, you know. And then they were like, they're frozen in time, perfect, and crystallized for me. And I think you know, there's that sort of appeal to it. But then there's the other type of band, which is what we've become, which is you say a gateway band. And that's where you know you fulfill a different role, and your role is to be that band that lets people kind of find out about the obscure bands because they can, you know, they're like, oh yeah, I used to be in that band, but now I'm into this obscure band. And that's you know, every band's got its role. It's like an ecosystem. All right. Check it out, people. I'm here to talk to you about Harry's Razors. And the reason I'm so excited about Harry's Razors is because uh, they know what's up. They have disrupted this whole razor game business. So for those of you that are shaving, which is, I hope, most of you, 
you know how painful it is to buy razors. You know, they get you. They're like, oh, wow, here's like a $10 razor and three blades. And then you go back to the drugstore or convenience store and you're like, why is a pack of blades like $47? It's absurd. You don't need to do any of that. Harry's will deliver it right to you. They're delivering high quality blades, German manufacturing, five blade cartridges, they give you a close and comfortable shave. It's unbelievable. So seriously, why pay $32 for an eight pack of blades when you can get them for half the price at harrys.com? And the Harry starter set is an amazing deal. For just 15 bucks, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. So normally Harry's doesn't like to do discounts. I mean, that's not their thing because the stuff is so cheap. It's direct to you. They cut out the middleman. But because their prices are already so low, we've, we've worked out a special deal just for you, the listener. So go to harrys.com, and then you get $5 off your first order. So harrys.com, enter the promo code. This is important here, 100 words, the number 100 words, and you will get $5 off your first order. Seriously, I've been using the kit now for a good two, three months, and it's awesome. I'm able to shave with the grain, against the grain. It's beautiful. It's close, and I don't have to worry about wasting so much money on stupid things like razors. Well, to be frank, they're not stupid. They're pretty awesome because they make your sh- your face nice and nice and smooth. My wife was even like, "Hey, like your your shaving looks good. Like you don't you don't look like you're a novice at this game anymore." And it's like, "Well, I got Harry's. I'm awesome." Well, I'm not awesome, but Harry's is awesome. Well, you get the point. Anyways, visit again harrys.com and then use the promo code 100words. You will get $5 off your order. Just try it out, right? What do you got to lose? It's definitely one of those things where you're not able to uh, obviously see where you kind of sit until like opportunities start to get presented to you. Because it's like, you know, I I don't think very many bands would look at the, you know, opportunities and the attention that you guys were getting um, and be like, like, oh, no, we're we're not going to do that. You know, well, out of every 10 bands that would do that, like maybe one would choose not to. And obviously, like you say, be that, you know, band frozen in time. Um, but most of them would just be like, yeah, like, why not? Like, why would we not want to, you know, be on this cool, legendary label that yeah. has a lot of things going on for it? And we have friends that made that decision. Like, I know bands that were offered, you know, like how seriously and, and you know i don't know but like the, i do know friends that were in bands that were offered like other labels you know like the chance to kind of like make that quote unquote next step you know but like that all those rules are out the window now in 2016 like the biggest band in hardcore is a band with just a demo out you know and like the second biggest band is a band with just a seven inch out right like you know gloss would well, well i guess they now have a seven inch too and then that band uh uh, Reeks from or Reese, I'm, I'm fucking up the name, of course, but uh, from from France, or like they're arguably the two biggest bands in hardcore, or Coneheads too, like one obscure LP that no one can get, and these are like the biggest bands in hardcore now. Like I think it, it's it's like all the all the well everything changed, right? Like it's no the cycle is is broken in music. It's just the whole all the rules are out the window but yeah like the old way used to be different you know about trying to jump to the cool label but we had friends that didn't do that you know and i and i kind of like wonder now like you know like because the other thing is like when you have the opportunity presented to you it's kind of like well i know what's going to happen if i don't go with this label i know i'm going to not going to you know i'm just going to fade away into obscurity i'm going to keep doing my seven inches and that's it but then if you do you know like who knows what happens like you know like we we kind of were like okay we can do our next record on this label and it'll come out you know people might not like it like we were going to make hidden world uh 
and we were going to make You're the Pig regardless of what label we were on. Like those were just the records we were going to make. Mm-hmm. So it's like we could have made them on on you know the 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 labels that were still okay to make them on, and you know people might have been like eh, or we could have made them on another label, and and people could be like eh. So might as well just you know we know the result's going to be one way if we stick on the path we're on. Might as well try this other path. Totally. Yeah. It's, especially because it's like that, that opportunity doesn't come to everybody. Like you said, mm-hmm. um, another thing I want to hit on was the fact that, uh, obviously I, I love how you speak about straight edge and obviously the fact that you're not straight oh. ed- the, the fact you're not straight edge anymore. Um, there is a, a, a reverence that I think, you know, a lot of people don't transition to, <laughs> you know, it's like they, they look at the, the thing of straight edge being like, Oh, it's just that dumb kid shit I was into. Like, I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about, but like, obviously you, um, you know, you had every reason to not, uh, you know, continue down that path and obviously introduce uh, cannabis into your life. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, I just wanted you to kind of, you know, un- unwrap that. Like, was that a, uh, Obviously, I know it weighed heavy on you, like when you decided to not be. Oh, it's huge! Huge. Decided to not be straight edge, but like, was it? Did you shift immediately into that that mindset of just like, oh yeah, like straight edge was amazing, like it, it, you know, or or was that something that you had to kind of like grow accustomed to? No, Um, I don't think I ever was bitter at all towards straight edge. Like you know, straight edge didn't let me down. I I kind of let straight edge down. You know, (laughs) like that's the way I kind of look at it. Like it was there. And, and I like, I remember having a friend who did break edge a lot earlier and he would say like, you know, when people would say, oh, it's just a trend, you know, and this is like, yeah, but what a fucking amazing trend to be a part of, you know, even if it's just a trend for 10 to 15 years of your life or like, you know, five years of your life, even it's like, you know, as long as you don't ruin someone else's life and make someone else's life harder for them, it's like, what an amazing thing to be a part of, like what a positive youth experience to be a part of. And it's kind of like, that's the way I look at it, you know, like it's not obviously a youth experience because a lot of people, you know, are adults and, and straight edge, you know, and I'm, a lot of my friends are straight edge and stuff like yourself. And so I still, you know, I still see the value it has in, in people around me's life. But I think for me, it's like, I have no regrets at all about being straight edge. Like I have regrets about being on the pharmaceuticals as long as I was without recognizing what that was doing to me. But I don't have any regrets about being straight edge. I think you and I are the same exact age. We're th- you're 35, right? 36. 36. Okay. You're so you're young. You're, yeah. You're, I know. <laughs> the um, and and you have uh, you have two children now. You have three from the recent birth of your uh, your. Is it a son or daughter? A son, Camden. Is okay. The latest. And so You're great. Do you, you always had the intention that you were going to, you know, obviously be the the family man, as it were, and kind of enter that, or was that a, uh, a sort of unintended, like, oh, so now I'm going to be a dad, sort of thing? How did that all? Uh, just because that's it's such a weird notion for people that grow up within punk and yeah. hardcore to be, have kids, you know? I honestly, I think I felt, I like, I was thinking about this the other day, just coincidentally, you know, was I, I, I think I always thought I would have kids. I always said I was going to have kids. But like everything in my life, I think the middle step was always missing. So I don't know when I envisioned myself settling down and meeting someone and (coughs) – sorry, getting married because it wasn't – like it just wasn't in the cards I didn't think at the time, right? Right. Um, Right. And and like I didn't lose my virginity until I was like 20. Mm -hmm. So – it wasn't like I was like meeting a lot of people and like being like, oh, I'm, I'm going to settle down really quickly or meet someone. Like I didn't date a lot or anything like that. So, yeah, I think I must have intended to become a father. 
because I would always say to people like, yeah, one day I'm going to be a dad. But I really think it was meeting my wife, Lauren, my partner, Lauren, and and her and I just kind of like – it sounds so ridiculous saying it, but falling in love and then kind of being like, let's make children. Right. That's the next logical step. <laughs> yeah. I think that I think that's more – how it kind of, you know, because even though I would say it, I think I would just say it because that was the thing you said, mm-hmm. you know, like one day I'm going to have kids and I didn't really know if I ever intended on having kids at the time. But, you know, then when I met my wife and, and, and well, I knew her for a long, long time before we actually started dating. But once we started dating and, and you know, fell in love, I was like, I want to have children with this person and, and bring children up. And then, you know, things happen and, and more kids show up and, and right. you know. It's it's like whoa, you can keep getting pregnant and stuff right. like that. You got a you got a brood now. <laughs> you got a brood. We have a team. We have Hanson. Right, totally. You you are uh, three fifths of the way to a basketball team. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I think it's going to stay three fifths of the way there. I think we will forever have uh, a three man bobsled team. <laughs> I don't think I think there's going to be a snip and tie. Oh yes, an operation in the words of the Circle Jerks. Right. Uh, to make sure that there's, you know, we, every kid, I'm not, you know, no, no, in no way do I mean that none of these kids were, you know, loved and, and excited for them coming, but it was surprises when they were coming of at course. certain times. So totally, totally. I did. De- I, I definitely got the procedure done six months after my child was born. Cause I was like, yep, I'm done, man. We're done. We're yep. shop is closed. My friend, I was going to get a procedure done. I probably would have got it done sooner. But I was waiting to get a pilot made for uh, right. about about it, and I was going to have my procedure done on TV. So I'm kind of glad that that didn't happen. So I'm going to have to book my own procedure. <laughs> yeah, now you, now it's will be part of a television show. <laughs> now it's not going to be part of a television show. Now it's just going to be part of the reality TV show called My Pathetic Life. <laughs> um. The uh, the thing that uh, you know it was it was funny when you're when when I first became aware that obviously you were doing a podcast because I honestly I think I I've listened to since episode one it's one of those things where anytime a new sort of music podcast comes up um, that I feel is obviously uh, akin to or similar to what uh, you know I've been doing of course there's always that immediate like oh all right let, let's sniff this out like let's see if this is yeah. fucking good yeah. like just that weird competitive nature you know no, it, it, it's natural you know yeah. and i think i think everyone feels that way it's funny when you're in a band and uh, you know all of a sudden that that switch flips and you're like all of a sudden concerned about your spot in a weird way like mm-hmm. obviously i've moved much past this now but i look back at certain points of my life where i was like oh geez i was there was a moment where it stopped being like a band that was like gaining, trying to fight for my spot and started being a band that was like a protective of my spot. Right. No, that's true. So that, that, I can only imagine with the podcast too. It's the same way. Well, yeah. You know, you, as you know, with a band. Totally. You, you, you feel that, that sense of like, okay, like it's, and I think this is, I guess where maybe the whatever maturity level uh, rises up where it's just like, <laughs> okay, as long as it's like, not this like, carbon copy of this thing that already exists then you feel like it's like it's cool and like obviously what you do and i do is 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 in the same world but at the same time like you know you're you're definitely focused on the minutiae and the details where you know i'm obviously trying to be a little bit more uh emotional about it as it were um yeah but it, it the the thing that i i I guess endeared me to the your show in particular not only because i like you as a human being but the the content that you're getting out of these people 
is obviously the obsessiveness because I do think that there is something that is so um, charming about how obsessed people get with shit that is mm-hmm. on the you know on the outside of the world where it's like you know most yeah. people would look at either record collections or Dungeons and Dragons or whatever and be like like why the fuck do you care that much about that um, yeah and, I mean is that is that something that obviously that was kind of like in your in the forefront of your mind when you started to kind of put the show together, just like explore that, that really detailed minutia, or is that something that was just a byproduct of obviously who you are? I think it's definitely a byproduct of who I am. And, and just like the way I like to understand things is by, I have to see how it fits together. You know, like I, I, I have to know like when it, with bands, how they connect to one another, like, Oh, that person, like saw that band and liked them. And that's why they became like this. I don't know. I've always been into that. And I've always kind of been, I think growing up in Toronto, Canada, I was like, you know, really privileged. Cause that's a super heavy media market. Well, I was privileged for a lot of reasons, but growing up in that media market, it's, it's, you know, it's, there's a lot of opportunity to kind of pick out stuff. Like it was a major distribution hub for records through viable alternatives, which was record peddler record store in Toronto's distribution company. There was also like, you know, actual record labels there and other distribution companies over the years have been kind of hubbed out of there. So you kind of always had lots of records, lots of media, like free weeklies. So, I, I like you know. Obviously, I, I, I feel lucky that I stumbled into punk and I found punk. But you know, and I found punk through this kid Nick that I went to. Uh, I was like learning how to be a summer camp counselor with when I was thirteen, and he told me about Sonic Youth, and that's how I got into it. But I kind of think I would have found out about it some other way. The thing that I've always found fascinating is like, how did someone who wasn't from Toronto find out about it? You know, or or how did you know, someone get led on this path to to getting into this music because it's not always the easiest thing to like when you're growing up. Um, I, and then I was also like Colt Cabana's podcast. He's like a pro wrestler who does a podcast called The Art of Wrestling where he just interviews wrestlers about wrestling. And I was like, well, I, w- I want to just interview people in bands about liking punk music or just people that I know like punk music about liking punk music. And a lot of those conversations – I had with people backstage at shows or like we would play a festival, you know what it's like and you're playing a festival and there's like some band that you really like on it. So you're like, well, I'm just going to seek them out and punish them right. because that's what I'm going to do today. And, you know, and like there's like many tours where like, you know, Jonah from Fucked Up and I have gone and just like harassed the dude from Monster Magnet because he was in shrapnel or <laughs> – you know, I walked by Duff McKagan's dressing room one day and just like knocked on it and was like, yo, can we talk about the farts and the fastbacks? And he was just, you know, shocked, I think, at the whole experience. And <laughs> that's the thing that I also noticed is that as soon as you talk to these people and take them back to kind of like the moment of innocence and in the moment where like you've gotten your most idealistic, which is kind of when you get into punk, I find with most people, that's when you have like, Obviously, you're most cynical, but you're also your most idealistic about how the power of this genre, you know, is going to change the world and change your life at, at very least. And uh, you know, I find when you take people back there and you get them to talk about that stuff, it, it's a really easy conversation. Like, there's crazy people that I've had punk conversations with. You know, unfortunately, not on the podcast, but you know, like uh, the, uh, 
it's a weird story. I've told the story before, but, uh, you know, like I was back, we were in Australia playing this festival, not a festival. Yeah. We were playing a festival, sorry, but we were just backstage seeing the Foo Fighters on a day off. And I went backstage and I ended up, you know, talking to this dude with face paint on and, and, you know, I, I was smoking weed with him. I'm going to out him as smoking weed with me. Uh, and, and, uh, I'm like, you know, he introduces himself. He's like, my name's John. And I'm shaking his hand. I'm like, oh my God, it's Johnny Depp. And like, I, I remember from like a spin magazine article that I read that he played in this punk band way back when called the fast cars. They identified it as a fast cars. And I remember that kind of bumming me out because there was like another band from Manchester called the fast cars. And I was like, oh, well, I don't know if you know how much of a head he was right. taking that band's name. Uh, even though it's kind of ridiculous that he would know about in a pre-internet world this random ass band from Manchester, but that's a, beside the point. Uh, so I, I was like, "Yeah, did you play in a punk band in Florida in the mid '80s called the Fast Cars?" He's like, "No, we were called the Z Cars." And I'm like, "Oh shit!" So were you in a punk? And he just like we just went down a path of talking about punk rock stuff, and then started talking about this band, the Screaming Sneakers, and it turns out. I, like well, it didn't turn out. My friend had given me a bootleg the day before the Screaming Sneakers seven inch randomly, so I just put down my knapsack and pulled it out and showed it to him, and he teared up and he's like, "That's my ex girlfriend's band. I can't believe you know them. That's crazy." And it was just like, you know, and I, you know, like I, I don't know what it would have been like talking to Johnny Depp about anything else, mm-hmm. but I talking about punk, it was fucking awesome. Yeah, like we just like. <laughs> it bonded immediately about it and and it, t- it took it to a place where he like you know was like before any of this stuff happened you know mm-hmm. well, like for it, him it's the great it's definitely the I, i've always put it like it's the great uh you know it's the great leveling where like yeah. when you can pull that out of a person and realize that they were as obsessed with the same thing as you were at some point in your life that's what it's like because you're all you're doing is just relating to human beings on a very human being experience and absolutely and i think with punk too there's almost like a built in like a built-in safety valve of you know that this person on some level at some point recognized that celebrity was bullshit because i think that's kind of one of the like pillars of punk rock like you have to kind of recognize that celebrity is the most ridiculous edifice we have in this world and it's just put on people you know and 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 there's no difference between the these people and you and i think that's like really key to punk rock because that's anyone can be the band is the key to the the whole thing and and you know once you kind of get over the fact that the bands are special it just ruins celebrity i think that's that's at least what it did for me so you know anyone that was into punk i think deep down has like that sense of we're all equal maybe i don't know maybe i'm i'm way overstating i'm way idealizing punk people punk people there's assholes and terrible monsters that are into punk rock so that's right. what i'm saying <laughs> well cuz i think i to me the I mean a common theme that I, I've been able to gather from all the you know speaking casually and then on the podcast as well is like it's just so foundational because not only obviously yeah. is it, it's happening at, at a time of your life when you're looking for identity and you're looking for something to attach yourself to, but then it's like these things that you know you learn when you're whatever fourteen fifteen sixteen from either political views or philosophical views, and then it informs you when you're like you know in your mid forties where you just think about like oh yeah like. I, I still do think that way because of, you know, propaganda or whatever. Like, it, yeah, well, it's amazing. Propaganda is, yeah, propaganda is the best example to me because I think, 
like I learned about Angela Davis from Propaganda. I learned about like uh, Howard Zinn from Propaganda. I learned about like fucking Noam Chomsky from Propaganda. Like I just learned about stuff outside of my worldview. Mm-hmm. Like, and and I learned about people that wrote about things that I would should go read about. And I learned about people that were doing things that were interesting and, and, and outside of punk rock. It just like, it's, it's such a cool foundational thing to get into, you know, and obviously there are terrible aspects to it, like, and, and negative sides to it. But I think, you know, at its best, it's such a, like we were talking about straight edge, it's such a great thing to be into when you're young because it can, it just shapes you in such a, you know, hopefully positive way, you know, and exposes you to, you know, for, for, you know, at best, once again, at best, uh, a lot of positive stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the, uh, you know, as you obviously started to, um, this is more so in talking about fucked up, mm-hmm. like once, once you guys started to, uh, you know, get recognition and started to be able to tour and stuff like that, when did you kind of make the shift in your head to like, this is a real band? Like, you know, this is something that is, uh, and when I say a real band, as far as like sustainable, like, oh, like we can exist for longer than, you know, a couple seven inches in a full length. And like, oh my gosh, we're actually getting paid money to do this. And like, um, when did that shift kind of come into your head to where it was like, oh, this is, I guess, what I'm focused on? I, I don't think. Uh, like I don't think it ever did. Okay, <laughs> you know, like, and I don't mean that in a like it. It did in the sense that like I always believed in the music we were making, you know. But I think it always. Uh, I don't know if it was it's the anxiety or if it's, but it, I, I can't ever feel like anything's there forever, mm-hmm. you know. And so like I, I've always kind of like gone into it like this might be the last thing that that happens you know like a kid like obviously not every single thing because right. like sometimes you're doing a seven inch before an lp but like every lp it feels like it could be the last one you know because you just never know and i think that and, and i think a lot a lot of people are like oh it's a gimmick and 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 some people are like oh it, you know it's probably played up a lot but there is like animosity between people in the band and it, it does become unpleasant at times to to be around and i think once in a while we need to kind of step away and, and it feels like maybe this is the time that we're going to step away from each other forever. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also like, I don't know, like you will it to be a reality at times. And I think Mike and I, especially Jonah as well. And, and Josh and Sandy too are huge fans of this band. Gauze, Gaze from Japan. That is this Japanese hardcore mm-hmm. band that's been around for, I guess it's 35 years at this point, maybe a little longer. And the legend has it that they only practice five hours a week. And that's the only time they spend with each other, except obviously touring and playing shows. And they don't really know anything about each other's personal lives because they don't want anything to get in the way of the intensity of the music. So this could all just be a legend and like, you know, like like some sort of like thing put on Burning Spirits Hardcore by people in in North America, but you know, it, I think for us, it's kind of like the music is in the same way we like kind of look at causes. Look, at it. it's more important to us than anything else. Like we're going to keep coming back together to kind of to do stuff. Like we're working on stuff even now. Like we're on a break. Like we're not even really 
doing anything, but we're still working on songs and working on stuff because I think there's still ways we kind of want to push what we're doing. And I think we would have been, like I said earlier, we would have been that band no matter what. And I think we're still that same band that we would have been no matter what, you know, we've been very fortunate because we've been afforded opportunities to kind of like to, to do things like record in studios and to kind of like, you know, live out our creative fantasies as it were. But like, I think, you know, artistically as pretentious as that is, we are still that same band that we wanted to be, or we were going to be at the very beginning, but it's always felt like it's the last time. Right. <laughs> so, to go way long. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I appreciate that 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 train of thought because I think it is. Um, I was like, yeah, lost in my own train of thought there. I apologize. I was just no. reflecting on a lot of things. It's always like a well, it's because weird because like I was if we had done this interview, I, I don't know, eight months ago, I would have been like, uh, yeah, well, it's probably the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it, it, you know, we're working on stuff again, and it feels like things are kind of like you know. It's not we're working on things in the sense that we're going to go back out and, and, and right. trudge out immediately, but we're working on a couple – Things are materializing. Zodiac. We're working on some Zodiac stuff because we've always kind of said we're going to work on Zodiacs regardless. We're just going to keep doing Zodiacs just as a way to kind of you know, keep at it no matter where we're at as a band as far as LPs and touring and whatnot. Right. So we're, we're working on some Zodiac records right now and it feels you know kind of interesting and, and exciting again. So it's like, oh – yeah, let's. It feels it feels different. So right. sorry if I got lost in my own train there. No, I mean it's great because I do think that within your your um, you know contemplation there, I think there's something that is so inherent with with band life and obviously pursuing artistic uh, you know endeavors is the fact that. Once you buy into the thing being the thing, that's when it's, uh, you know, that's when a lot of ego comes into play because it's like not only are you, you celebrating, obviously, yourself in some capacity, but then you're celebrating the fact that you're like, oh, dude, like I fucking made it. I'm making money off this thing. Like, and I think when you do make that, that logical and logistical jump in your own head, that's when sometimes it becomes, you know, it, it, it gets out of your control. And it's like you, I've definitely noticed within the context of your band, like you've always maintained that control to the best of your ability because of obviously all of those things that you were talking about, which is, you know, it's a hard, it's a hard balance to pull off. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Like, I don't, like, I don't know if we've always been that successful in maintaining control of the situation, but I think with us, it's like, I think we just realized very early on, you know, like we're students of the game, you know, it comes back to what you're saying about this podcast being like a, a reflection of, of who I am as a person. And I think it's like for, we're all kind of the same sort of people in this band. Like we're all nerdy obsessives, you know, and now we've all blossomed into weirder people as adults, but you know, we were all kind of on similar paths, different paths, but similar paths, you know, and the way we kind of like approached information and, and I guess knowledge was kind of like, kind of very similar for all of us. Um, and, and, and so I think we were just students of the game, you know, and like looked at other bands and have always just kind of looked at other bands and, and looked at bands we liked and kind of looked at how they've handled themselves and things that they've done and bands that we liked what they did and bands that we were like, Oh, well that, that might be a mistake doing it like that. And, you know, we've, we've definitely stumbled into a lot of the same mistakes that other people have, but, but I think in, in other ways it helped 
you know, us figure out some things and, and prevent us from making some other mistakes. The idea that uh, because this was never, uh, you know, your band was never the intended like thing to be, you know, your sustaining force and what have you. Um, like, did you have a notion of obviously like as you started to, you know, go through school and like start to I- explore career options? <laughs> did you yeah. have did you have ideas of, of what it is that you wanted to like express yourself? And were you I mean, obviously you're attracted to the creative arts, uh, but did you think that was a thing? that you could try to explore and be sustainable? I think I would have loved to have gone to art school. I think I was way too insecure to do that about stuff. I like, I love drawing. I love making art, you know, and I think that is ultimately, thank God, fucked up and popped up and became the thing in my life because I've been able to kind of pursue making art for a good number of years now. Um, and uh, But I think that's what I would have been much happier doing. But I was kind of on the path to... I would tell people like, oh, I, I want, I'm going to be a lawyer, you know. But once again, it's like, I don't know, I was just saying that. Like I was saying I was just going to be a family guy one day. I was going to have kids one day. Like I don't think I had any comprehension of like what that would entail. Um, so I like – I was like going through school. I met at on this like rock photography exhibition thing that I was working on while I was in university this guy, Moses Neimer, who runs much music in Canada. And he told me to drop at a university. Um, like, I, I mean this in a way, like, like he suggested I drop at a university and come work for him and be a VJ. And this would have been like, I was like 20 at this point. And like, so it would be like 2001. And so I uh, dropped out of university and, you know, started calling him. And then uh, it never happened. <laughs> so <laughs> I was working in a video store. Uh, uh, no, I wasn't. I was actually working. Uh, yeah, I was working in a video store and a candy store at the time. And they asked me to join Fucked Up. But like, yeah, like I don't know what I would have wound up doing. Like I before Fucked Up went full time, I was working in the mailroom at Unilever, um, like that giant corporation Unilever. And mm-hmm. that was a pretty awesome job. I've never been as well read. I read like eight newspapers a day. I I would eat Ben and Jerry's ice cream because I, they owned it. Like one of the many, one of the multitude of corporations they owned uh, was Ben and Jerry's and Lipton soup. So I'd have free soup and ice cream every day for lunch. Um, I I was pretty stoked about that. You know, that job was pretty good. Uh, you know, so I, I don't know if I would have been wound up doing that. Um, but who, who knows like that? I think that's, I, I really feel like as much as I kind of have bemoaned fucked up, over the years and and never made it where I thought it was going to be, you know, the, like, this is be my career forever. You know, uh, I, I'm really grateful for it because I, I don't know what I would have been doing otherwise. Right. And did your, uh, did your parents, uh, like, where does, where does you pursuing the life of obviously being in a band sit in their heads? Like did, especially with the, the name of the band, it's not like there's anything that they could really, no, point to as being a badge of pride where it's like oh yeah like D- david <laughs> plays a band called oh god damn it like how did that how did how did that evolution of the I, relationship go I, I think our our parents in this band and run the spectrum uh as far as their acceptance of the band and the band name uh, my parents have always been really accepting of it and of me doing it like they obviously wish i had a different band name but i don't think they ever thought it was going to be my career 
uh, or it was going to be what I was known for. And then by the time it was what I was known for, they were really proud. Um, my dad was played in that band Gentle Giant before they were Gentle Giant. He played in like some weird R&B band. He was the drummer. He got kicked out because he had no rhythm. And uh, I inherited much of that too, I think. Um, he – so like that was the – you know, my, and my mom was uh, – when she was like a teenager – was on a TV show in Montreal called Like Young that was kind of like American Bandstand, but they had like a like a troupe of dancers that would come in and dance on TV. So that was like my my parents both had like ambitions of the rock and roll lifestyle. <laughs> so by the time Fucked Up became a real thing, they were just always really proud of it. I I never felt anything but kind of a. a you know, creatively supporting it. My dad would tell me, oh, you know, the names, you're not going to go anywhere with the name. But he also once told Damon Alburn from Blur the same thing about his band. <laughs> so so your dad is basically dumb when it comes to band names. That's what you're saying. Yeah. My dad is, <laughs> if my dad tells you to change your band name, uh, keep it. <laughs> yeah. Just, just go and ignore that advice because it hasn't worked out. Start making T-shirts that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get the uh, get all your social media properties taken yeah, care of. Yeah. Get the website registered. You're done. Yeah, no, my my dad is amazing, and I love him. He's like my he is my favorite visual artist. Like uh, his illustrations, incredible and stuff. But uh, at the same time, yeah, not one to turn to for the band name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and sorry, I, I know I mentioned that there was one last thing, but the uh, yeah. I, I did want to speak about your uh, like you mentioned the the. The anxiety that you felt, obviously, as you were growing up, I mean, partially due to, uh, you know, your weight and a lot of the struggles that you you felt with that, like, um, there, there was something that I wanted to circle back on, too, in regards to that, because obviously, like, the singers of bands, I mean, I can personally attest to the, you know, girls are I- instantly attracted to you because you get up there and are a thing, you know, regardless of what you look like, because obviously, you know, people have been like, oh, Mick Jagger, I can't believe that guy is who he is. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah. Um, but did so as you started to obviously um you know become a focal point of the band and people recognized you for that and um you know i i know you're obviously in a in a committed relationship but i'm sure you had to have noticed like the attention that was uh being put on you in ways that you probably weren't used to was that like a a struggle for you to kind of like grasp in your own head yeah like i don't think it ever really happened for us you know or maybe i'm just oblivious to it or i i don't think i ever put out any Kind of, or I tried as best I could to never make any of that vibe there for the, the band. You know, like I just wanted to be as f- fun an experience as possible. And I think also fucked up in general, like, you know, and obviously people in fucked up, you know, every other member of fucked up probably, you know, you know, enjoyed life a lot more than I did. But uh, to me, fucked up was the most asexual experience on life and still is. In life, you know, and I, I, so I, for me, it was never really an, about that. It was always just about, and I don't mean that in a way that like, you know, like people that are, that are, are hit on are courting it or anything like that. Or, right. but I mean, it just never happened for me. And there's never, I don't know, maybe it was the environment or maybe it's just me not being very attractive or something, but it was just never, you know, like I, the bears, uh, bear, uh, a lot of bears liked fucked up and were into fucked up and stuff. And that was awesome. And, you know, meeting a lot of bears made me feel really good because, you know, growing up, I didn't really have anyone, you know, uh, express certainly not on mass. 
attraction right. to me or say that I looked sexy. Sure. You know, I think that was the other thing. I can remember I can remember all the sequence of events that led to me taking off my shirt. And I now know it's a staple of fucked up shows. And I even get shit when I don't do it right. um, <laughs> at this point. But I didn't take off my shirt at all. Like I told you earlier, I didn't take off my shirt for years. Right. And then we played this one show in Albany and uh, the fucking drummer of Limprist. My, no, he's my friend. Yeah. Uh, he grabbed my shirt and started ripping at the collar, and it was my Maryland vitamin shirt. It was actually the first Maryland vitamin shirt that they made. I wish I still had the shirt. And it ripped right off. He did give me a police line shirt for it, but it was a medium, so it didn't fit me. But anyway, I'm digressing again. <laughs> and I just remember being like I, – I can still remember the feeling like looking at the audience like I was expecting people to start laughing at me. Or something. You know, right. this is the middle of and fucked up was already like kind of a, a band at this point. Like we had I think police was out probably at this point, uh-huh. I would imagine, maybe being the public, you know, and I was just like, Holy shit, like I can't believe uh, I just had never had my shirt off really in public like that. Like I'd gone swimming, but it was you know, it was just because I guess I had gotten given a lot of shit for it as yeah. as a as a kid, you know, like and then so we played another show a few weeks later in South by Southwest in Austin and and Scott Moore from Limpress came up to me and he's like, You look really good with your shirt off. And I could I just couldn't believe anyone had ever said this to me. He's <laughs> right. like, What? He's like, Yeah, you look great with your shirt off. And it was so hot that night of the show. And there's video of it. You can see me pacing back and forth on stage. It's at uh, Chaos and Chaos Fest. Not someplace of us, sorry, Chaos and Chaos Fest. And I'm just pacing back and forth. And I just take you see me just take off my shirt. And by that point I was I was in it. You know? Right. Um but that was really when it kind of happened for me, where I just was like, I'm free. It was like my Tommy moment. Sure. You know? Well, like, it- fuck this. Totally free. And I, I've been bleeding on stage. I've been cutting myself up on stage. You know, I was fearless about that shit, breaking bottles on my head. Right. All that ridiculous behavior. Um, but, you know, wouldn't take my shirt off. Right. So still had my hangups. <laughs> There's, yeah, the, the, the fact that you felt free at that one particular moment for, you know, taking off a garment. It's like that, I mean, that is a liberating feeling. And I can understand why it would have been such a, a big deal for you to accomplish it and then be like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that and, – and then once – and then once I once I started doing it, I just was like – well, first of all, it became a lot easier to play the shows because I was, you know, bigger at the time and and it was, it was hot. A lot of shows were very sweaty. Um, but it also – became a, a moment of empowerment like i'm gonna force you to look at this everyone in the crowd look at this right and and this is what i look like you know i have hair on my back you know right and it's enjoy it <laughs> yeah enjoy it and revel in it and then people did and it was and then it became something i couldn't stop doing right and so and then obviously you do the podcast with your shirt off too yeah, I do the podcast now with my shirt off and and uh, no, but my pants are definitely off normally when someone's there, just sitting there in my underwear in my room with them, just right. trying to make it as awkward as possible. Right here, here you are. Here's a wall of yeah. vinyl. Here's me in my underwear. Let's talk. <laughs> me in my underwear and my cat. Let's talk. Right. 
<laughs> well, Damien, thank you so much. This has been uh, really fun for me. And something. Oh, Ray, thank you. Very, very. Uh, it, it, like I said, it was a, uh, it was a challenge because you've obviously put a lot of your life out there. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip around to the emotional beats as opposed to the uh, obvious questions. So I appreciate you. Yeah, no, I appreciate you being introspective and reflecting. Well, it's funny because like I, I think with fucked up, there's always been this thing in the beginning where Mike wanted to keep it as mysterious as possible. You know, and, and very much like, you know, there's like, you know, a fake manager and there's like, there's all sorts of intrigue around the band. And I've always wanted to be as honest as possible because like to me, the most empowering thing about this music, punk, hardcore, you know, anything in that kind of world is the fact that it is so honest. Oh, at, at, once again, at best, at best, at the best of times. But like the fact that you have bands talking to you directly and, and, and not speaking to you uh, through – well, just speaking to you direct, directly through their songs, you know, and the fact that they're doing that. And, like, so I've always kind of – I always hope that it try to be as open as possible yeah, with this well, stuff. So. Well, I appreciate that. I'm glad, I'm glad that we – I'm glad we have this I appreciate you, Ray. Oh, no, man. I appreciate you having me and, and thank you. Love the podcast, man. And, like, thank you for putting up with me and the fire alarm and all sorts of uh, – all the different uh, locales that have been uh, – required to make this it feels like we've made uh ishtar yeah <laughs> oh definitely definitely ishtar hello welcome to the outro who, who welcomes an outro anyways that was uh the fun discussion i had with damien and um we actually did this over two separate times because uh he got pulled away uh, when he was at work and you heard the fire alarm and it wasn't because of that he was safe and everything was okay. But, um, yeah, he just got called because, uh, he does a lot of stuff for uh, vice and, uh, he was doing, I think, uh, more of his weed content <laughs> for vice, which is, uh, gosh, I can't remember the name of the series cannabis something, but, uh, you can easily Google it if you are so interested. I personally am not, but <laughs> if you are a fan of the weed culture, he's got you covered on vice. So, uh, yeah, but hopefully you didn't notice too drastic of a difference between the two conversations. And so, um, yeah, I, I sliced them together, did some digital magic, and uh, here we are. So um, that's, uh, that's that. Anyways, thank you very much for listening. You can visit the show 100wordspodcast.com where you can access the show archives. So that means you can see all of the guests on one convenient player do that. And uh, that way you can share it easily with other people and stuff. Um, I also want you to email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com, and uh, 200 shows. Just I'll, I'll give myself a pat on the back. And also give you, the digital listener, a pat on the back. You feel that? Hopefully I didn't distract you too much. Hopefully that was uh, not too creepy. That was a, a fun pat on the back and not just like, you know, the, the creepy uncle that sometimes comes up and like, hey, buddy. It's like, whoa, what are you, whoa, what are you doing? So anyways, the guest next week, as I told you that I would tell you, so here I am telling you, <laughs> is uh, Cliff Nesterhoff. And I know most of you are like, what? Who, who's that? Cliff Nesterhoff is an author. Uh, he wrote a book called The Comedians. Uh, he also appeared multiple times on Mark Maron's uh, WTF podcast. Basically, the dude, that book is unbelievable. Uh, if, if you even have a passing interest in comedy, you'll love this book. Because basically, he traces the lineage of, you know, vaudeville, like early 1900s comedy, all the way up to modern stand-up. And the stories that he unearths are are unreal he, because it's like he's looking at the the variety 
archives. When I say variety, I mean like the, the magazine that covered the entertainment industry during that time period. And he's just like finding all these stories, talking about the mob influence on comedy. I don't know. I could go on for a while, but I, I won't because I'll do that next week. Um, so yeah, Cliff Nesroff. And the reason that he's coming on is because he has a large history within the context of punk and hardcore, which I was able to kind of glean from the book. And then I hit him up on Twitter and he was like, oh, sounds great. I would love to appear on the show. So boom, there you go. There's a little behind the scenes magic. Anyways, uh, I will uh, talk to you next week where I will be on vacation in San Antonio and Austin, Texas. Fun stuff. And um, yeah, so that's that. And I will talk to you uh, next week, everybody. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.